You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for joining us this morning, and thanks for leading us merrily and Connor in beautiful worship and the psalm reading as well. Um, Adriana, thank you for that. If you'd like to open your Bibles to John chapter 5, we are continuing on from verse 30 onwards, and we won't get through this whole passage today, surprise, surprise, um, but I'll read the whole uh, passage through to the end of the chapter just to get the context, and we'll be continuing on with it the next time we look at this. So verse 30, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he sent. You search the scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me, that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And nobody likes the feeling that they're being watched as someone waits for you to make a mistake so they can pounce on you and attack you. You feel like you're walking on eggshells all the time, super careful to tread so lightly that you don't crack any. And the anxiety and the stress builds up until you feel like you might explode. Get off my back, I haven't done anything wrong. It can feel a bit like that here in Melbourne in the midst of stage four lockdowns at the moment. We're only allowed out of our homes for very specific and tightly controlled reasons. And if we stray more than five kilometres from home, We won't run the risk of being pulled over by the police and fined more than $1,600 per person. We recently went out to hire a carpet cleaning machine. Um, Might as well make use of the lockdown and get a few jobs done around the house. 
but the only place we could get one was 5.3 kilometres from home. But even with only that small distance beyond our boundary, I was nervous about getting caught. When we went back to return it the next day, there was a police car in the car park that I'd planned to pull into. You can be sure I didn't pull into that car park. And I did my best to make sure we didn't draw any attention to ourselves in the other car park I pulled into as well. Did we put anyone else at risk by going outside of our 5k boundary by 300 metres? Of course not. Were we at risk of being fined for going outside our 5k boundary? You bet we were. So I was driving on eggshells, you might say. Whether you think it's just or unjust is not the point. The point is we broke the law by going outside of 5Ks. And if we were pulled over, we would probably have been fined. We could, of course, go to court to fight it, but that would be just another stress on top of the initial stress of feeling like we're under intense scrutiny just for going about our ordinary business. You don't need to be breaking the law to feel that sort of tension though. It might be that you have a strained relationship with someone and everything you say or do is liable to be misinterpreted and used as a weapon back against you. You all know the feeling, I'm sure. It's no fun. It happens in every relationship. Husband and wife, parent and child, friend and friend, workmate and boss. No relationship and no situation is immune from this stress. There will be times when you feel like you have to walk on eggshells. And Jesus knew this stress better than most. The Pharisees watched him like a hawk, waiting for him to slip up. They even set traps to help him trip over. He was accused of all sorts of sins and crimes, and always without basis, of course, but he was accused nonetheless. And when we think of the trial of Jesus, it's pretty natural for us to think about his arrest and being dragged before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin for judgment, and then being dragged off to Pilate and Herod before judgment is pronounced. Strangely enough, Pilate, after pronouncing Jesus not guilty, hands him over for execution. But that's another story for another day. For today, I want to look at the trial of Jesus in John chapter 5. Does that surprise you? Did you realise there was a trial, or at least an attempted trial, this early in Jesus' ministry? But that's exactly what's happening here at the end of John chapter 5. This whole passage is couched in the language of the courtroom. And we see Jesus is here presenting the case for his defence. So if we pick it up again in verse 30, I can do nothing of my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now, we've discovered in previous visits here in John chapter 5 that Jesus claims to be God. At least, that's what the Pharisees understood him to say, and it enraged them. You might imagine that if the Pharisees had misunderstood Jesus, 
on such a serious matter that Jesus would be pretty quick to correct them. After all, pretending to be equal with God was one of the most serious charges and one of the greatest sins that anyone could be guilty of in that culture. But rather than correct the Pharisees, Jesus asserts his claim to be God by stacking one proof on top of another to show that he is who he says he is. And it all culminates in Jesus telling them essentially that you might think you are judging me, but in reality I am and I will be judge of you and of all mankind. So it's not entirely unexpected that the Pharisees would reject all this. They've had it in for Jesus at least since he turned over the tables of the extortionists and rip-off merchants in the temple courts back in chapter 2. And as we all know, in a court of law, you need witnesses. The prosecutor will present his case against the accused and bring in his witnesses to support the charge. And the accused, and in this case, that's Jesus, is permitted to bring in his own witnesses to, to defend himself. Those witnesses may provide more insight into the circumstances of the alleged crimes and the accused acted in self-defence, Your Honour, as the five thugs bashed him. Or they may provide an alibi. The accused was with me on the night of the crime in a different city. Or they may provide character references. I've known the accused for 30 more years or more and have not once seen him act with violence. This principle of needing other witnesses was enshrined in the law of Moses back in Deuteronomy 19.15, where it tells us a single witness shall not suffice against any person for a crime or for any wrong in connection with any offence that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. The Pharisees prided themselves on their strict adherence to the Mosaic law found in the first five books of our Bible. But as we'll see in John's Gospel, their faithfulness to the law was entirely dependent on what best suited them at the time. But getting back to the principle, witnesses are necessary in a trial, both to bring an accusation and to defend an accusation. The testimony of only one person doesn't carry much weight in the eyes of the law. A person may be lying to protect themselves or to protect others. How can you be sure if there are no witnesses? Jesus understands this. So he tells them, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, Jesus is not confessing here that he is a liar when he says that. He's using courtroom language to say, in essence, I acknowledge that more than my witness alone will be required to satisfy the rules of evidence. If mine is the only testimony, you have no way to know whether I'm telling the truth or not. And so Jesus proceeds to give them not just two or three witnesses, but five witnesses for the defence. Surely that will be enough to establish his claims. These five witnesses are God the Father, verse 32, 37 and 38. John the Baptist in verse 30, verses 33 to 35. His miraculous signs in verse 36. The scriptures themselves in verses 39 to 44. And Moses in verse 44. 
So let's see what witnesses the prosecution will present to refute him. We know, of course, because we've read the story, that they can't present any. Even the ones they do scrape up at his trial before his crucifixion are false witnesses, clearly breaking the ninth commandment to not bear false witness. And even those false witnesses can't get their story straight. Under normal circumstances, at least, if there's no body, no evidence, and no witness to a murder, you'd be hard-pressed to find grounds to convict the accused. And in Jesus' case, the Pharisees had no evidence of wrongdoing whatsoever and no witnesses to back their charges against Jesus. But that doesn't stop Jesus' enemies, though. It didn't stop them 2,000 years ago, and it won't stop them today. Every false testimony, every rejection of this evidence is one more nail in the coffin of their guilt before this holy and righteous judge that they seek to condemn. In verse 32, Jesus goes on to say, There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you are willing to rejoice in his light for a while. And Jesus introduces the first of his witnesses here. We have to read down the verses 37 and 38 to find out who he's referring to when he says there is another. And there it's revealed to us that Jesus is referring to God the Father as the witness who true, speaks truly about him. Now, why do I say it's the, that it's the Father and not John the Baptist? I mean, Jesus goes on to talk about John the Baptist in the very next sentence. Why isn't it referring to him? Well, for starters, he tells us that although John's testimony about him is true, Jesus doesn't receive and doesn't require testimony from man. And also because when John recorded in this gospel, there is another he used a specific Greek word for another. Now, the biblical Greek has two different words for another that both have different shades of meaning. The first word is the word heteros, which means another of a different kind. It's where we get the English word heterosexual from, meaning a person attracted to another person, but of the opposite sex, of a different sex. And then there is the word alos, which John uses here to indicate another of the same kind. Jesus has been making the point in the previous verses that he is equal with the Father. He is of the same kind, the same essence as the Father. Different because Jesus says another, the same because he is the same kind. The same word is used in John 14, 16 in reference to the Holy Spirit. There Jesus tells his disciples, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another comforter, another helper, to be with you forever, even the Holy Spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit whom the Father will give is different. It's another, but another of the same kind, alos. So Jesus is declares in John's gospel that he is of the same kind but separate to the Father and also of the same kind but separate to the Spirit. 
We'll come back to the witness of the Father later. But uh, first, let's see what Jesus has to say about the witness of John the Baptist. John had a very public and a very popular ministry, and a very effective one too. The Pharisees know well who John the Baptist is. They know his testimony. In fact, they hadn't just heard what John thought about Jesus. They had requested to know what he thought. They'd sent a delegation to him to find out what he had to say and why he was saying it. You can read all about it in John chapter 1. Who are you? Why are you baptizing? We need to know, they asked John. And John replies, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah declared. Now they recognized instantly what John was declaring by this statement. The words of Isaiah that John quoted were familiar words to the Jews. They were much loved words. They were prophetic words that the Lord had given about their release from captivity in Babylon. It's a passage that told them that the Lord is coming soon to rescue and comfort his people. And he will come to show a great display of his glory. Now, the Jews rejoiced when they were liberated from captivity in Babylon. But now they live again in subjection to another power, the Romans. They might not be in captivity in a foreign country, but they're not free either. They are essentially captives in their own land, for the Romans ruled them with an iron fist. So if John the Baptist is telling them the truth, then liberation from the yoke of Roman oppression is about to arrive. No wonder they are excited by John's message. No wonder they were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But what was it that John told them? What was the purpose of John's ministry? To prepare a people to receive their Messiah, their Saviour, their Rescuer, their King, to point people to Jesus Christ. Yes, they are excited to hear John's message, just as long as their Messiah isn't this man, just as long as their king isn't Jesus of Nazareth. You are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But John was telling you about me, it's as if Jesus might say, do you now reject John's testimony? If you do, you're renouncing your own belief that John was a prophet. If you don't, then you have to accept his testimony about me into the evidence. So if they accepted John's message, they also had to accept that Jesus was the Messiah. If they rejected John's message, they were denying what they themselves believed to be true about John. They really were on the horns of a dilemma, so to speak. Sadly, they rejected John's message. They rejected the very salvation that John had preached about and who was now standing accused before them. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, Jesus says, but I say these things so that you may be saved. If only they would listen to John, they would turn to Jesus and be saved. But they would not. How much evidence is enough? Just a little bit more. But the witnesses don't stop there. Verse 36, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. 
for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. John's testimony, as good as it was, pales into insignificance with the next witnesses that Jesus presents in this impromptu court. The works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Once again, the Pharisees had previously recognised something that they now want to reject. You'd recall Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, came to Jesus secretly in John chapter 3. And the first thing Nicodemus says is, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher sent from God. No one can do these miraculous signs that you do unless God is with him. They knew what these signs meant. They were not fools, but they still rejected him. And Jesus graciously grants them the privilege that if they're not convinced by his words alone, if they're not convinced by John's testimony, they're allowed to believe on the basis of the miracles he performs. Later on in John's Gospel, in chapter 10, John tells us, the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly, as if he hasn't been telling them plainly right from the beginning. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus gave them every opportunity imaginable to believe, but they were nothing if not stubborn and willfully ignorant. What they did not understand about the healing, what did they not understand about the healing of the man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, the very healing that triggered this confrontation? What did they imagine was going on with all the other hundreds and even thousands of miracles that they had witnessed Jesus perform? Now, in John's gospel, he always refers to miracles as signs. Signs are designed to point to something else. Signs aren't the thing itself. And these signs were some of the works that the Father had sent him to do that point to himself. The works that Jesus does is far more than just signs and miracles, though. The works include the words that he speaks. But they rejected both to their condemnation. Jesus continues to provide every opportunity imaginable to believe even today. In fact, we have even more opportunity. There are few people, certainly in our country, who don't have access to the Bible to read his own words. There are still frequent reports of miracles. There are messengers sharing his word with indigenous peoples in even the remotest of places. There are modern day John the Baptists and Paul the Apostles and Philip the Evangelists that would direct you to Jesus Christ. If only you would hear and believe. How much evidence is enough evidence? Maybe just a little bit more. If you choose not to believe, it isn't because of lack of evidence. 
It's because you do not want to believe. Friends, if you have already believed the evidence and the testimonies, if you've already put your trust in Jesus Christ, you have nothing to fear from him. You will be met by him with open arms on the day you take your final breath of this earthly air. Keep walking the path he has set out for you faithfully, humbly, and daily calling on him for strength. But for those of you who haven't yet believed the testimonies about Jesus Christ, how much evidence will be enough evidence for you? Just a little bit more? When will there be enough evidence to believe? If you've set your heart to not believe, then no amount of evidence, even right in front of your own eyes, will be enough. Even someone raised from the dead won't convince you. Because the problem really isn't a lack of evidence. The problem isn't even intellectual. The problem is moral. The problem is you. You do not want to believe. But that doesn't have to be your problem. John the Baptist has testified that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John tells us. The miracles recorded and the miracles that still occur to this very day testify that Jesus Christ is the creator and the ruler of the universe. And your Christian friends will testify to you that he is the Lord and giver of life. They know they've experienced new life for themselves. And the Bible testifies that Jesus Christ is both man, fully human, and God, fully divine. He knows what you're going through because he's experienced it on a human level. And he can rescue you from it because he is the all-powerful God. These witnesses and more that we won't get to this week, confirm that Jesus is who he claims to be. And if he is who he claims to be, he is entirely reliable. He is entirely trustworthy. He is entirely able to rescue you. Won't you listen to the witnesses? Won't you believe his testimony? I hope and I pray that you do. Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we really do have no excuse to not believe in Jesus Christ. The witnesses are everywhere. They surround us. The creation declares you, Lord. We only have to look at the sun and the stars and the moon and the trees and the rivers to know that there is a God, a powerful and an almighty God. But Lord, we need to look to the Bible, look to the words of Jesus himself to see that that almighty and powerful God has stepped down from his throne in heaven and been become man, truly man, to live a perfect life, to die a painful death, in our place as our substitute and yet to rise again 
to show, Lord, that you have power over life and death, that you are who you claim to be, and that you offer life to everyone who will believe the evidence, believe the testimonies, and put their trust in you. All those who believe will be saved. Without exception, Lord, you have said it, you promise that great is your faithfulness, we sang this morning, Lord. Your promise still stands, great is your faithfulness. Through all generations, Lord, you make the offer and you back the promise to save all who will turn to Jesus Christ in faith and put their trust in him for their eternal future. Lord, I pray for my friends here that you'll you'll keep us fixed on you, our eyes fixed on you, our hearts fixed on you, Lord, that every day you will walk with us, comfort us, strengthen us, encourage us, and every day, Lord, you'll bring us more and more the conviction that you are who you say you are and strengthen our faith thereby, Lord. And for those, Lord, who may have heard this message and have not yet put their trust in you, I pray for them, Lord, that you will open their hearts, open their minds and tear down the barriers of their resistance. Lord, would you change their heart? Would you open their ears to hear the testimony of the witnesses, witnesses to truth? And Lord, would you grant them the great blessing and privilege and delight of becoming our brothers and sisters in Christ with all the hope, the confidence, the assurance, the peace, the joy, the certainty that accompanies being one of your family. Lord, I bring my friends before you, my brothers and sisters before you. Pray, Lord, that you will just pour your goodness out on them, Lord. And I commit them to your daily care and your faithfulness, your covenant-keeping faithfulness, Lord. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the only Saviour and Son of God. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.